If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. there and welcome to episode 171 of the Leading Learning Podcast. We've got another great show for you and this time we're going to talk with Gary Kokins. Gary is the founder and CEO of Analytics-Based Performance Management. He's an expert in performance improvement systems, advanced cost management, and predictive business analytics, all things that learning businesses need to know about. And he's a speaker and writer. And Salisa, you were the one who got the chance to talk with Gary. What did you talk about? Well, you mentioned that Gary's an author, and uh, among his many publication credits is the book Predictive Business Analytics, Forward-Looking Capabilities to Improve Business Performance. He co-authored that with Lawrence Maisel, and most of what Gary and I talked about revolves around predictive business analytics, or PBA for short, what PBA is, barriers to implementing PBA, how data and business analytics can help correct what he's observed as organizations' tendency to over-plan and under-execute. And also we get into how interested organizations can get started with predictive business analytics. We also talk about the central role of curiosity and questions. Gary says, in fact, that in the past, the best leaders and executives had the best answers, but he believes that today the best leaders and executives have the best questions. And then towards the end of our conversation, we get into artificial intelligence and machine learning, as you might expect in a conversation about data analytics. Well, I like that connection he makes between data and leadership and using data meaningfully as a leader. And, and you and I saw that data analytics bubbled up to uh, be one of the, the, the top topics in our 2019 Learning Trends Survey. And our survey showed that learning businesses really are hungry to use data to make better product decisions and eager to use data to show the impact of their learning offering. So it's a, it's a very hot topic right now. It's something that organizations, uh, learning businesses need to be learning more about. So it's great to have Gary Kokins on the show and to shed some light on data analytics. Let's, let's go ahead and roll that interview. Hello and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Salisa Steele and today I'm joined by Gary Kokins. Gary is the founder and CEO of Analytics-Based Performance Management, LLC, and he's an expert in performance improvement systems and advanced cost management. Gary's also a speaker and a writer. Among his many publication credits are the books Predictive Business Analytics, Forward-Looking Capabilities to Improve Business Performance, and Budgeting, Planning, and Forecasting in Uncertain Times. Gary, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Well, so to start us off, I want to give you a chance to say more about your background and your work. What else would you highlight for our listeners? Well, my career, I kind of put it in, is in kind of like three sections. And first, I started it with a degree from Cornell University in operations research and industrial engineering. That gave me the analytics background. I did my MBA at Northwestern University's Kellogg. My three sort of sections, my first decade was with a large corporation in a division controller and production manager role. Then in the middle of my career was with KPMG and Deloitte and electronic data systems as a consultant. And then for 16 years, I was with SAS, the large 
uh, analytics software vendor, and I'm almost 70. I retired about five years ago, and now I'm just basically having fun helping others and teaching and webinars and the like. Well, great. Well, thank you for lending us your expertise and insight here on the Leading Learning Podcast. Uh, In the first chapter of the book, Predictive Business Analytics, you and your co-author describe predictive business analytics as uh, a competitive edge and as mission critical. And you even assert that the only truly sustainable strategy is to have organizational competency with analytics. So I'm hoping um, you could start off by explaining what PBA or, or those predictive business analytics, what that is and why you see it as so critical. I'm not sure I have a good definition for predictive business analytics. I mean, it's I think it's sort of self-evident. It's just the ability to more accurately, with re- more reasonable certainty, you know, predict outcomes and the like. But the reason I refer to it as a competitive edge gets a little more complex. I, the way I pose this is, if you ask yourself, how does any organization gain a competitive edge? Well, one of the options is being first to market through innovation, like an Apple. Another might be through customer loyalty. Um, another might be by being low-cost, low-price provider like a um, uh, a Walmart, you know, if you will. You know, but the question is, don't these have, aren't these sustainable? Are they not sustainable in the long term? Because if you actually go to a famous professor from Harvard Business University Business School, Michael Porter, he basically alleges there are really three generic strategies, ultimately about cost leadership, cost differentiation, or focus. And the cost leadership strategy, that's accomplished by improving process efficiencies, unique access to low-cost inputs, vertical integration, avoiding certain costs, that kind of stuff. Differentiation strategies like developing um, products or services with unique traits valued by by customers. And the focus strategy is concentrating on a narrow segment with an entrenched customer loyalty like a Tiffany's, you know, for jewelry. But my question is, don't these have risks today? They're Mm -hmm. vulnerable. That cost leadership strategy, other firms can more rapidly lower their costs. And with these agile and lean management techniques, it doesn't take them years. They can do it in months. And the differentiation strategy, you've got imitation by competitors. You know, when the iPhone came out, you thought, wow. And then, you know, within six months, all Samsung, all these other competitors had their products as well. And in the focus strategy, broad market cost leaders or micro segmenters, you know, they can invade or erode, you know, your customer's loyalty. So like when Amazon started off with books, you know, then they went to kind of like catalogs and now they're into, you know, television and competing against, you know, regular TVs. So my point is the best defense is agility with quicker and smarter decision-making using statistics, analytics, and operations research. In other words, it's almost difficult to say we have a strategy. Strategy is constantly going to be changing. It's really a competency that one requires. Mm, that's great. Yeah, and and thank you for, for explaining that more. And, and I, I know that one of the things that uh, really stayed with me from uh, reading some of your work was just that emphasis around this idea that, that the analytics is – taking existing information and but actually producing new information right that it's it's giving you that that intelligence it's giving you that insight to be able to make some decisions and so i know that at this point you've been involved with data analytics business analytics for for decades um and you have that broad range of of experience those three sections of your career leading up to to where you are now so i'm curious to know from your position and what you've seen what are some of the key 
changes um, that have happened during your career? Well, the first one and the obvious one is compute power. I mean, just the ability for software and computing and storage and speed and all of that to happen. The other one, though, I think is much more of a softer one. You know, it's executives now are, I think, a little more knowledgeable. They're much more knowledgeable and receptive to using analytics. You know, in the old days, you know, they really weren't. I, I could give you a little anecdote. My first job or early, actually it was a intern job, was with the Chicago Transit Authority. And I went into the uh, research and development department. And I was going to optimize all of the trains and uh, buses in the Chicago system. I was raised in Chicago. And when I got to the office the first day, I discovered it was the dumping ground for bus drivers with ailments and leg injuries and so forth. And there was like no interest in anything, you know, sophisticated. That's completely changed now. Now there is receptiveness. Um, so I think it's uh, the openness to basically use analytical power for decision making. Mm, great. So your computing power plus just the more general receptivity, more general appreciation of the need for the purpose of uh, analytics. So I, I know that among the things that you can do for organizations is that you can help them to um, educate their their teams to clarify some of the confusion and misconceptions about business analytics. So what are some of the common misconceptions uh, about business analytics? Well, one of them is everybody perceives it's way too complex. And, you know, it's actually not as complicated. Yes, there is regression and correlation and clustering and associations. And those are segmentation. Those are examples. And I know some of the listeners who are older may have taken those classes in college and just said, gee, I just want a passing grade and get out of there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, well, sorry, it's here. But it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to basically get your your textbook out. But you do need say, need skill sets with employees in your organization that that have those skills. And and um it's and it doesn't have to be that complicated to solve certain problems. And some of the power tools you know, basically help facilitate it. Another one is it's okay to be good enough. I mean, a lot of people have, especially, you know, I work in a lot of the area, the CFO, the accounting, you know, they want precision and detail and everything to be perfect to the nth degree. And, you know, it's okay to be good enough. It doesn't have to be, you know, perfect. You know, you're basically just trying to get into the ballpark to get some dis- insights to make decisions. <clears throat> and um, it doesn't also, and a misconception is, the analytics aren't necessarily going to provide 100% of the answer. They're going to be what you were referencing earlier. They're going to lead to questions and then better questions and more powerful questions. So it's kind of like a ladder that, you know, it's kind of endless. It doesn't always answer the question. It generates and stimulates new questions as you get more and more insights and understanding. Well, that's great because I know that that was one thing that struck me again in looking at your work was that emphasis on on questions um, and and also on curiosity. So could you talk a little bit more about kind of the role that, that questions and curiosity play in, in the work of uh, an analyst, in the work of, of, of folks dealing with analytics? Well, to me, it's always about questions and, and more questions and better questions. But, you know, the curiosity, I think that almost becomes kind of like what differentiates, I think, really strong leaders from less strong leaders. And maybe it's something, you know, you see it when babies, you know, babies are always curious. And I think curiosity is more of a virtue and of, of, of individuals. I think the more the data scientists, if you will, 
I think if you did some sort of, you know, personality profile, you'd find that they're, they, they would be strong on the end of very curious. They want to know why things are happening and how things are happening. Well, so I think at this point that, you know, listeners, if they didn't already come into this conversation um, with an appreciation for the the opportunities that um, business analytics offer, I think they're beginning to to get some of that from what we've discussed, just this this idea that it can be um, a sustainable uh, strategic um, benefit, um, that it can help with the the decision making that that has to happen and has to happen with an increasing frequency it has to be made on a, a faster timeline now. But all all that said, um, I know that there are still kind of barriers to um, adoption of of good data analytics practice. So, you know, what are the barriers? What gets in the way? If we can kind of see the opportunity that it's represented, you know, why aren't we capitalizing on it? Well, um, you know, some of the options might be, you know, not having enough sufficient analytical skills in your organization or the analysts that I was re- referring to. But I think it's really much more social. Technology is no longer the impediment. It really is issues that have to do with resistance to change, which is human nature. I usually say only babies like change. Um, fear of knowing the truth, fear of being measured, fear of being held accountable, not wanting to be embarrassed. You know, weak leadership is an example. None of those have to do with really technology or the methods. It's all really social. And I really encourage, I end all of my presentations uh, when I'm speaking to audiences and say, you know, this is really the issue. And the heads are all nodding up and down, you know, that this is really requires change management. And when you get back to this point about asking questions, this is an observation, I believe, that I've seen in my career. I think in the past, the best leaders and executives had the best answers, Today, I do not think that is the case. Mm -hmm. I think today, the best leaders and the best executives have the best questions. There's way too much uncertainty and volatility for them to rely on their gut feel or intuition or maybe even the uh, answers they gave in the past that got them promoted to the high-level executive positions they're in. They do need to create a culture of discovery and investigation. That's what's key. Mm. So yes, a, a real emphasis on the the culture change, on the the need to, to shift um, the people, not not the technology. And I know that you've seen in your work uh, and in your 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 time in in various organizations this this tendency for organizations to over plan and under execute. So how do you see data and business analytics helping to correct that over-planning, under-executing tendency? And and I'm thinking in particular of operational decisions. Well, I personally have always had a bias for action. I always kind of like humorously say, ready, fire, aim. Um, I like to basically move fast and, you know, making mistakes early and often, not later when it's more difficult. But when you talk about decisions, you mentioned operational decisions. There's actually three layers of decisions. And I actually want to read from my uh, co-authored book with the prof- with Larry Maisel, um, who was a KPMG partner I met way back when I was with KPMG, who co-authored with me. And so decisions can be segmented into three layers. Strategic decisions are few in number, but can have large impacts. For example, should we acquire a company or exit a market? 
Tactical decisions, which is the next layer down, involves controlling through moderate impacts. For example, should we modify our supply chain? The operational decisions that you mentioned, Saliza, occur daily, even hourly, and often affect single transaction or customer. So, for example, what deal should I offer to this customer? Should I accept making you know, this bank loan, you know, a, as an example? You know, one uh, – well, we'll get to this. I think we'll get to a few of the questions. I was going to say something now, but let's save it for a later question. Okay. Well, yeah, you know, what struck me in that uh, – I really appreciated that uh, that. Uh, categorization of those three different l- types of decisions, and I thought in particular the points that you and and, and your co-author were making around just the, the fact that it's those daily decisions, it's those operational decisions that really ultimately move the dial and actually get you closer to achieving your strategy or get you further away from atri- achieving your strategy. And and I thought that that. Um, th- the role of analytics in helping to make those daily decisions come easier, be made with more confidence, that, that really struck me as being really important. If you're craving greater confidence with daily decision-making, then we suggest you check out our sponsor for this quarter. Authentic Learning Labs is an education company seeking to bring complementary tech and services to empower publishers and L&D organizations to help elevate their programs. The company leverages technology like AI, data analytics, and advanced embeddable API-based services to complement existing initiatives, offering capabilities that are typically out of reach for resource-stretched groups or growing programs needing to scale. Find out more at leadinglearning.com authentic. And now, back to Salisa's conversation with Gary as they turn to talking about the importance of framing a problem or opportunity before looking at the data. One of the other things that really struck me from your work was was the emphasis that you put on the need to frame the problem or opportunity before you look at the data. Um, you you make the point that that framing is really a key step because it helps prevent confirmation bias. So will you say a bit about the need for framing and and how we can go about framing? Yeah, I, you know, a lot of people tend to jump the gun when they see a problem and they think, well, here's how we basically get into it. And But I basically believe what often trips people up is they do not start framing a problem before they begin collecting the information that will lead to their conclusions. And then there's often this bias or preconception. So one seeks data that will validate their opinion or their bias. You know, the adverse effect is we prepare ourselves for X, but Y happens. So by framing a problem, one really widens the opportunity and options to formulate more hypothesis. And hypothesis testing is really what the the data scientists are really all about. You know, you know what they they're basically want they want. I'll tell you what most analysts, even most em, employees, I think, who are listening to this, what they want is easy access to the data and the ability to manipulate it. Now, part of the problem now, and I don't want to create issues here, is the IT function. The IT function basically sometimes kind of gets into the way. They can be an obstacle. So got to basically, it tends to be a wall between IT and the users and the analysts. That wall's got to come down. <clears throat> and I'm not trying to do finger pointing. You know, there's not really a blame game going on here. I think when IT basically realized that the analysts really do need that easy and flexible access to the data so they can basically manipulate it and do the type of analysis, and then it's a win-win situation for the organization. Mm. And so, you know, you're pointed to a potential challenge with the the IT 
to you folks, but uh, just if, a, if anybody's listening and they're thinking, okay, you know, finally want to get started with uh, some analytics, really want to do this, you know, but they haven't really begun yet. What would be some first steps? What do you recommend for, for getting started with data analytics? Well, there's two schools of thought for this. One school is what you need to do is create a center of excellence, uh, you know, an office somewhere in your company and hire PhDs with, you know, heavy duty, you know, statistical backgrounds. The other school of thought basically says, no, what you really need is some quick wins at the beginning. Start small, think big. And, you know, by just thinking about what is one type of problem that we might be able to actually apply some of these, you know, advanced analytical tools and, and, and basically have some success with it and then broadcast it, put it into the company newsletter or however, you know, successes are communicated with an organization. And that can lead to basically another little more complex problem and then, you know, further go up the ladder. Basically, I'm an advocate of the second. The center of excellence, I think, is a good idea. You know, the doctor is in, come in, solve my problem. <laughs> you guys know how to basically do all this heavy regression and correlation stuff. But I think it's really more about, you know, learning and having successes, which lead to more successes. And, you know, just keep going up the uh, the ladder and evolve that way. Well, that school of thought seems to be consistent with your ready, fire, aim approach, right? Get in there and try something, try to get those wins, refine it, keep going. So in predictive business analytics, I know that you um, suggest that sort of the the next wave to follow after analytics would be automated decision-based management. Now that book is is a few years old. It was published in 2013. Um, How close do you think we are to automated decision-making uh, happening as, as a reality, um, or do you see something else now as the next big wave? Well, let me start with just the first part, um, and I like to refer to it as automated decision rules, and um, that that is making progress. Um, I mean, as an example, for call centers, uh, you may phone into a call center rep, but the rep, the telephony system will actually recognize your phone number. And it will basically know, since they've got a customer master file and they know basically things like how much you've bought and maybe your zip code and are you in a wealthy neighborhood and so on and so forth. And it will route that um, uh, call to different you know, capabilities of different call center reps. But then when the rep basically looks at your um, uh, you know, qualifications and your customer master file kind of information – the analyst may have actually already determined, based on historical information and their analysis, maybe what price discount or coupon or offer, what level to basically attract that customer to buy something more. So the automated decision rules actually was created by the data scientist and it's being fed, if you will, provided to the call center rep who's basically trying to basically sell more. And that's what companies are trying to do. You know. But in terms of the next big wave, which I did not know about in 2013 when Larry Maisel and I wrote the book, was here's the big boys, artificial intelligence, mm. robotic process automation, machine learning, cognitive software. Those four are almost kind of go together. And um, I think this is happening 
much faster than people believe. This is not 10 years away. You know, people think about driverless cars and all of that kind of stuff, you know, but it's really in many, many other areas, like, for example, in the accounting uh, uh, world, the auditing world, the audit is going to be basically done by a computer 100%. And it's basically those, you know, recent graduates with their CPAs from the university that joined Deloitte or EY or Ernst & Young or uh, Pricewaterhouse or BDO or Grant Thornton, I could go through all of them. <laughs> it, they're kind of out of a job. It doesn't mean they're totally out of the job, but, you know, they'll basically be augmenting. The power is going to be done by the artificial intelligence. And, and what concerns me is very few people are prepared. Mm. Few organizations are prepared, and this is going to be. Um, it is going to impact jobs. It's going to eliminate jobs, and I think this creates a really important role for the HD human resources and personnel function to basically start preparing their uh, employees. You know, with certifications and going getting higher degrees and basically moving moving up because you really got two choices when your job's eliminated. Go down and flip hamburgers, you know, at a fast food restaurant or go up and basically start being more of a manager or maybe, you know, even lead to higher level management roles. We absolutely, we uh, have talked uh, before on the podcast with, with other folks about the impact of artificial intelligence. And just as you're saying, really, there will be a growing role for, for learning to play um, for those people impacted um, positively and negatively by, by AI, the impact on, on the jobs, both in terms of what it um, enables and what it um, uh, means that they no longer are doing. So yeah, it's huge uh, opportunity, a huge challenge as well for um, those in the learning business. So, yeah, and, and, and Salisa, if I may add, please, um, and there is a YouTube video that the audience, I really strongly encourage to view. It's 15 minutes long, but it'll keep your attention. And the title of it is Humans Need Not Apply. Mm. Humans Need Not Apply. If you just go to YouTube, do a search on that. It's done very professionally. And when it's done, it's very provocative. It will make you really think about this is not 10 or 15 years away. This is coming soon. Well, great. Thanks for that suggestion. We'll make sure to get the link to that into the show notes as well so folks can find it that way as well. If you're looking for help with the opportunities and challenges Gary and Salisa are discussing as they relate to learning businesses, then we encourage you to check out our sponsor for this quarter. Blue Sky eLearn is the creator of the PATH Learning Management System, an award-winning cloud-based learning solution that allows organizations to easily deliver, track, and monetize valuable education and event content online. Blue Sky also provides webinar and webcast services, helping you maximize your content and create deeper engagement with your audience across the world. To find out more about Blue Sky eLearn and everything they offer, visit leadinglearning.com slash blue sky. And now back to Salisa and Gary as they turn to the penultimate question in their conversation. That question we ask of everyone who comes on the Leading Learning Podcast. And with that, I'm going to shift a little bit and ask you the next to last question. This is one that we ask of all our guests on the Leading Learning Podcast. It's one that focuses on your personal learning specifically. And what I'd like to know is what is one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing up your formal education? Well, this is kind of a co-learning thing. Um, 
In my consulting career, um, which I really enjoyed delivering to um, clients, um, I began deploying a technique called rapid prototyping with iterative remodeling. So when designing a cost accounting system or a balanced scorecard or a strategy map or all of these various uh, components that comprise the enterprise and corporate performance management methods, that's really more my expertise. I started basically doing workshops with the client on the first day with just five or six cross-functional people in the room and building a model very quickly, typically using commercial software. I'd have a modeler from a software vendor in in there. And then in the afternoon, <clears throat> bring in the peer line managers and the executives. And um, it was not intended to be usable information, but it was basically to accelerate the learning and get buy-in. Mm. I have just discovered that is really the best way to go because the naysayers are impacted. People go, wow, how'd you do that so fast? Oh, now I understand what it's going to look like. You know, and then pretty much my job is done. You know, teach them to fish. They can fish on their own. They can continue the journey by going more slowly. I call this rapid prototype like 18 holes of golf on a polo horse. You know, boom, <laughs> you know, let's get through to the end. But now you actually know what those 18 holes are, you know, are all about. So when you say, <clears throat> what was my learning? It was what learning how I could actually accelerate the implementation. And incidentally, with some of these systems, they would now be implemented in three or four weeks, not six months to a year, because they were going so slow, doing data requirements, definition, the traditional way, mm -hmm. and collecting information and designing the thing. And I just, uh, I call it crawl, walk, run, fly. You start by <laughs> crawl. And um, so that was really a learning, kind of co-learning, because I was doing it with them. But I was like, wow, I was pulling that off. And then, and then, you know, then I would check in a month or two later and like, Gary, thanks. We're done. We actually built that system. But just because we did iterations based on that first model zero, I call it model zero. Don't even want to give it the credibility of model one. So they can do model one, model two, and then they'll get to a permanent, repeatable and reliable production system. Mm. That's great. Sounds very powerful. Um, that that rapid prototyping really empowering the people that you're working with. Um, that's fantastic. So, final question is just: if listeners want to know more about you and your work, where should they go, and and how can they connect with you? Well, that's pretty easy. There's a bunch of ways. One, my website is www.garycokins.com, and I'm just basically a single shingle freelancer, and I don't even do that much you know, consulting work. I really enjoy more teaching and speaking at conferences and the like. My email address is gcokins, that's C-O-K-I-N-S, C as in clock, at garycokins.com. And you're welcome to invite me in LinkedIn. I love working in LinkedIn. So I think it's a really powerful platform. So those are, I think, three ways to communicate with me. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for your time, Gary. And Thanks, too, for your, uh, sharing your experience, sharing your insights. It was a pleasure. That wraps up our interview with Gary Kokens. To get the show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 171. When you check out the show notes, you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, Jeff and I would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as your subscription helps us to be able to get some data on the impact of what we're doing. 
And we'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. All you have to do is go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. That'll put you in the right place. Or you can leave a review on whatever service you use to listen to the podcast. And Salisa and I personally appreciate your rating and view, review, but more importantly, those reviews and ratings really play an important role in helping the podcast show up when people who are interested in, in content that's relevant to learning businesses go searching for that content. And we'd be grateful if you'd check out our sponsors for this quarter. You can find out more about Authentic Learning Labs at leadinglearning.com authentic. And you can find out what Blue Sky eLearn has to offer at leadinglearning.com slash bluesky. Finally, please tell others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leading lifelong learning. And of course, share us with others there. You can email us out. You can walk down the hall and tell somebody. But however you do it, please do share the good word about leading learning. Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.